Well, good morning. Okay, you can hear me. So, you know, if, if I suffer from brain freeze this morning, we'll just glorify God that he uses even the less gifted. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, believe it or not. And uh, this is the second to last uh, passage of Acts that we're going to do. And um, it, it's weird to be getting to the end of this because it feels like home in a sense. Did you interact with somebody. Did you hear a story of a, of a close call from somebody? Raise your hand. Okay, so good, good participation. I was like, okay, I ought to be able to answer a question, and things started coming to my mind, like the time the ski lift operator shut off the ski lift so that the, I wouldn't be struck because I skied into the wrong spot and uh, saved my life, or the time I'm, I'm making a right and uh, the we're, we're wide open, and uh, I punch it, and Calvin gasps in the seat next to me, and I slam on the brakes and look back, and the car in front of us has stopped for no reason. You know, like, you, you start thinking about these things, and they just come back and come back, and Acts has felt a little bit like that. Um, here where we are in Acts, if you've been with us for a while, this feels more like a steeplechase than a sprint, uh, and I think I have a an antique steeplechase image uh, that we could look at that gives you an idea of, um, you know, it, it's off-roading, there's water involved, there's obstacles, there's people who might push you out of the way, it's, it's a mess. And that's kind of how Paul's journey to Rome has been. Um, another way to look at it, if, if black and white pictures don't do it for you, think of Parts Unknown, that, that old TV show, and uh, The Amazing Race, if we mashed those up, this is kind of Paul's life for a little while. And here's what happened last week. Pastor Tim uh, described Paul hearing from an angel saying in Acts 27, 24, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. This is kind of an echo of a line that God delivered back in Acts 23. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Paul knows where he's headed, but he has not taken a particularly direct route, and he has to take circumstances as they come, and he's had some close scrapes. I don't know about you, I don't like that. I like things to be smooth sailing, and I'm curious if anybody else here has difficulty taking things as they come. No, it's just me. Oh, okay, couple people up front, thank you. All right, I'm glad I'm not alone. And for that matter, I feel like we've seen God at work in Paul's story, not just moving Paul along, but also equipping him to cope. And in this passage, I see God moving in Paul's life in three ways. In the first few verses, God connects Paul on the island of Malta. In the second part, God moves Paul to Syracuse. And in the third part, God settles Paul in Rome. And in each case, God is the one doing the acting. God is the one initiating the action Paul is the recipient of God's intervention in his life. 
That's reassuring to me because I trust God a lot more than I trust me. So we're remembering that God is the main character in this passage, even though it features Paul. Paul didn't land on Malta on purpose. In fact, until verse 1, he doesn't know what island they're landing on. It wasn't Paul's ship that takes them off Malta and gets them closer to Rome. And it was obviously God's idea in the first place to make a place for Paul in Rome. So that's the movement that we're talking about in today's passage. But there are a couple of big things that I want you to, to, to notice as we go through the text. First key idea is that fate doesn't own you, okay? And my claim is that God has dibs on you. Whether you like that or not, fate doesn't own you, God does. And the second thing is that God equips his people to value and to serve others. So you don't belong to fate, you belong to God. And when you belong to God, the good news is you get to be part of his body's ecosystem of internal and external helping of one another. So with all that said, let's look at how God uses Paul on Malta. So God connects Paul on Malta. How did Paul get to Malta? If we judge by the circumstances alone, Paul's had a crummy, no good, very bad trip. We saw last week the breaking up of the ship that Paul, who's a prisoner headed to Rome, always, uh, you know, not a promising thing, I would normally say. Here's what we heard about uh, from Acts chapter 27, verse 37. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. Okay, background information. We pick it up again at verse 41. The ship struck a sandbar, ran aground, the bow stuck fast, would not move, the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, friendly, to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were there uh, were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached the land safely. And thank you, Pastor Tim. I will never have that meme not in my head from Titanic when I read this passage ever again. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the video on YouTube. Um, I'm still laughing inside. Okay, so the ship isn't seaworthy. The prisoners are barely saved from execution. And yet everyone reaches land safely. And that's where we pick up our passage. Paul arriving on an island called Malta. And we'll see at once he's the recipient of acts of kindness. Verse 1, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. It's an island south of Sicily. And of course, I have a map for those of you who like the geographic information or just being distracted by pictures. Came from Crete. Woo! Waggle all the way over there to Malta. Isn't that fantastic? Don't you feel edified? You're going to take that home. You're going to sketch it in your Bible. It's going to be great. Verse 2. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. So remember that Paul is not, it's not just Paul and Luke or Paul, Luke, and the centurion or it's 276 shipwrecked people who've washed ashore. So they've been in the sea and now they're on land. And by the way, uh, how do you picture how big a fire you need in order to dry off and warm 276 people? Or picture how many 
campfires you need in order to accomplish that because they're soggy, they're miserable. And uh, I've got Axl Rose in my head complaining about the cold November rain. So Rome had owned this island of Malta for, that's free by the way, for two to 300 years, okay? This is a Roman territory. And one of the things I think is helpful is to think about the fact that they've got a centurion and soldiers with them. This isn't just uh, some sailors and some prisoners. They've actually got some, some Roman soldiers with them. And maybe that's why there's this nice welcoming party and they, they work to make folks feel comfortable. But maybe it's not. I want you to think about this for a moment. God has been providing for Paul in a whole bunch of different ways. And in this case, it's by people who don't know who he is. His reputation presumably can't have preceded him or what he's about. And we need to move on, but I still want to stop here for a moment and just ask the question, what is the significance of Paul receiving acts of kindness from strangers? And take, take a moment and think for yourself, how, how do you respond to people you don't know especially trying to be kind to you? Are you self-deprecating? Do you refuse help outright? Do you doubt people's motives when they try to help you? And uh, Tim's like, Mike, you're preaching to yourself. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Luke literally describes this unusual kindness using a word that's not often found in the New Testament. Here's what Daryl Bach, a, a scholar of the books of Luke and Acts, says. The term philanthropia refers to the benevolence of unconditional kindness, a love for humanity. This term is used only twice in the New Testament. Here and the other instance is Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Paul is writing this in a letter to a pastor on Crete, the island from which they set out some time ago. He says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. So what just happened is Luke and Paul are using the same word to describe God's loving kindness and the actions of the islanders on Malta. What an amazing grace to experience the goodness of folks who don't know anything about Jesus, who don't know anything about Paul, just wanting to help people who got washed up. That's really encouraging. With that running in the back of your mind, let's keep going. See Paul helping outside his primary area of expertise. He notices that the rainy beach bonfires are going to require more fuel, and he lends a hand. Verse 3, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. As he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. All right. He's lending a hand, and this takes it too seriously because now his hand has a, has a snake on it. There's a snake on my hand. So you've got a cold-blooded reptile in some brush. It's just chilling, right? It's literally chilling. And Paul picks it up, doesn't realize there's a snake in there. As it gets close and, and into the fire, well, suddenly we've got a little heat going through this thing, and it says, I vote no. Paul, and uh, it's got fangs. And if I were writing the screenplay for this scene, I think I would have gone a little more dad joke-ish. Um, Paul's staggering around a bunch and says things like, Luke, never use a viper as a boomerang. 
It'll always come back to bite you. Thank you. Or Paul would say, Luke, is this poisonous? And Luke would say, no, Paul, that's not poisonous. Oh, good. Yeah, um, poison, as you know, is ingested and venom is injected. So it's, it's actually venomous, not poisonous, Paul. And any doctor will tell you. None of that, fortunately, is what happens. And if you come across the book of Third Mike, I recommend not paying any attention to its contents. Instead, what Luke does in his narrative is he cuts to a shot of the islanders reacting to this scene. He's not focused in on this interaction between, between Paul and Luke that I'm imagining. He's aware that these people who have welcomed Paul and all these castaways in are judging Paul based on what they're seeing. So verse 4, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. Who? Anybody else feel a chill? Like suddenly the snake is in the cold-bloodedest thing around. These, these islanders are like, oh, we've, we've got your number. You've done something wrong to end up in this situation. And there's actually a really old Greek story about somebody making it in a similar situation and he's lying on the beach and yeah, a, a serpent comes and bites him and kills him. And this theme, this idea that fate is going to come get you, it's something the islanders believe in. It's something that historically in the, 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 the past has been something that worldwide has kind of been agreed on, that when your number's up, your number's up, and we don't, we don't like that. I don't know if you've noticed, we don't like that. We don't like the idea that life is like... Um, That movie, Final Destination. None of you have seen it, of course, but, but let, me, let me just say that death won't be cheated in Final Destination, and so there's a lot of splatters. And that's what they're thinking. They're thinking the injustice of somebody getting away with whatever he's gotten away with has been taken care of by this force for justice that works in the world. And we want instead to believe that yes, things are gonna happen, body's gonna expire, whatever, things happen for a reason. And what surveys say is that people in general will actually say, yes, I believe in fate, but way more will believe in fate if what you say is, but you can change the outcome depending on what you do, how you respond, how you step up to things. We want to believe that despite the weight of circumstances around us, the things that we've done, that there's something we can do to alleviate the difficulty that fate's going to bring. And I don't think I believe that. And the reason I don't believe that is I haven't seen it work that way. But also, I don't believe it because what Scripture has taught me is that there's good news, and I'm excited about the good news. And the reason that I'm excited about the good news of Jesus is because that there's bad news. And the bad news is that I do deserve my fate, and it is going to catch up with me. And that I keep sinning, I keep falling short of God's standard, and when I do that, I earn a new paycheck for myself. And that paycheck is signed by death. And I earn it anew every day, unless I'm in Christ. Christ. 
And only in Christ do I get out of this paycheck that I deserve of death. So yes, they believed in fate. I believe in fate too. But I think there's a reason that they are confounded by what happens here. Paul is a person in God's service. He's pursuing God's agenda. He's got a protection that's not just going to see him through to Rome, but to realize everything that God intends for him, as difficult as this route has been. Okay, he's living his life as God intended. He's said, I'm not in the hands of fate. I'm in the hands of God. Why can he do that? Because he's okay saying, I'm God's property. And the modern person does not go, yay, I'm God's property. The modern person says, I ain't nobody's property, thank you very much. Okay. Here's the problem. If Jesus isn't resurrected, I'm dead in my sins, and there's no hope for me, and it really doesn't matter how I spend the rest of my life. There's not one thing I can do to prevent death from coming and repossessing this body of mine. So we and the islanders are caught between wanting to see justice done for people like murderers. People, kind of anybody worse than me, basically, is who I want to see justice done on. Not just murderers, but people, I don't know, like Seattle Seahawks fans and, and, and other, you know, horrible folks. Um, we want to think, on the other hand, that we... We measure up to God's terms when the reality is we are told emphatically that we don't. And if we evaluate ourselves honestly, we can see that that's not the pattern of our lives. And because Paul has, is a guy who switched teams from the death to Christians team to the everybody ought to know about Jesus, including these crazy Gentiles, I'm here to encourage you, if you're looking for a solution to your fate problem, I know a guy. The reason I know about that guy is because he had a guy named Paul who told us Gentiles about it. And he's going to be surprising those around him in the next verses. Verse 5, Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. Yay. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Okay, well, on the one hand, smooth move by, by Paul to just shake that thing off into the fire. Um, off he goes on his business. Now, he was bitten by a snake. It's not like he, the bite went away, but the venom had no effect, and he's spared the worst of what would result, and the islanders have no way of... They know what that snake does to humans. And so they, they're watching, and they're... Their eyes are big, and they're waiting for what they know comes next. Okay, and I apologize to those on the podcast. I was just bugging my eyes out and waiting like they were. And then go to the, obviously, next logical place. Well, if that happens to humans, he must be a god. That's the only other category that they have. Paul is certainly as calm as a god, probably calmer when you think about how pagan gods acted, pretty out of control most of the time. But think about how Paul has, 
had his credibility built by God over the course of what we've been reading in the last few weeks with a soldier's crew and passengers in the last chapter, verse 21, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up and before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. God values people more than stuff, and that's exactly what happened. So he's got cred with the 276 people who show up on this island. And now the people who were already on the island, God has built his credibility. What they were certain would kill him has had no effect. And Paul didn't make either of these things happen. This wasn't some natural skill. God initiated them both. But he was available to be a surprise to those around. And now he's going to have a chance to be useful back to those on Malta by reciprocating in acts of kindness. Verse 7, there was an estate nearby that Publius uh, belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Okay, Publius... Nobody's, anybody named their, no. Um, but it's a common name in Roman times. Um, the Roman poets Ovid and Vigil, the historian Tacitus, uh, Hadrian the emperor, and uh, Valerius the emperor, all of them, their first name was Publius. Things I didn't know, and now you get to know them too. Isn't that great? This gentleman, this Publius, is the protos the first citizen of the island. He's probably not the mayor. He's probably not the governor. He may not even be a native Malton, but he's, he's the guy on this island. He's the local who matters most. And my read on this particular incident is this isn't 276 people show up at Publius's house and he entertains them all for three days. It's probably the centurion, Paul, and uh, Paul's friends. And over the course of time, whether it's day one or day three, enough familiarity uh, is developed between them that Publius is able to say, hey, my dad's in trouble. Do you guys happen to bring any Pepto-Bismol? There's no 7-Eleven on this island. And Paul goes to see the dad, places his hands on him after praying, and the man is healed. And I'm not going to you know, spend a bunch of time on the details of dysentery, but let's just say that in the absence of medications, where your hope is, is can I keep enough fluids inside me that my body can fight off the infection and I can survive? An immediate cure then is something that's gonna get a notice because this is another thing that would never naturally happen. Verse 10, they honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. They had no ship. They had no ship's contents. They're going to get on a ship, and now they've got supplies to get them on board. Those islanders are grateful. One gets the sense that they're also amazed, but without further description, nothing said. Luke moves on to the next leg, and God moves Paul to Syracuse. Verse 11, after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed three days. Uh, I have another 
atlas picture for you because it's important to know there's Malta down at the bottom and they stop at Syracuse on Sicily and they're gonna continue up into Italy. Luke is accelerating the narrative. He's not engaging in as much detail. There's no dialogue really here. They get a ship once winter is over. They head to the island of Sicily. He does mention Castor and Pollux. These are gods revered by the sailors. They're supposed to be the offspring of Jupiter and Leda. Why does Luke bother to mention them? I think he mentions them for two reasons. First, it reminds us as readers that Paul's not in Jerusalem anymore. You know, it's been a while, but he's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's in a very Romanized pagan world. It's not a mix. There's lots of Hebrews around anymore. And the second thing is he's contrasting what we've seen in the past few weeks about what God knows about the weather and sailing and ships with what the people around Paul depend on. God knows when the seas are going to get rock, stormy. He knows when there are sandbars ahead. Um, carvings of two alleged gods on your ship, how much does that help you? Paul had an answer for those who are around him. He has resources for living day to day, for helping and loving that the pagan world really had no idea about. But the pagan world was certain that it had ideas of its own. Now, I don't think Luke is sneering at these figureheads the way you might assume based on how I spoke about them. He's not dismissing them. It's a reminder that the whole world, not just Rome itself, needs a message of hope, and Paul is carrying it. Paul has personally experienced it. Syracuse was a prosperous city at the time. During Roman rule, it was the capital of Sicily. But we don't stay there long. Off we go. Verse 13. From there, we set sail and arrived in Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putioli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came on to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, God uh, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him, just one soldier now, not the normal two. They trust him in a way that's unusual. Notice that there are already brothers and sisters there the whole way up through Italy. Christianity has reached Italy without Paul having been there. It's not Paul who's bringing Christianity, it's Christians. He is now one of many who are spreading their faith. In Puteoli, the main port, it was a big deal because it was the primary place where grain was collected for the empire. And so it was wealthy, it was busy, it was an interesting place to be, and so Christians came there. Paul didn't bring Christianity to Rome. Christ's church grew through others. Okay, and that's all I want to say about that last, last part. Paul has arrived in Rome. The thing that struck me the most about this entire passage was that Paul does not say an overt word about Jesus in the entire passage. There is no evangelism. Kirk Cameron is, is clenching his fists and teeth going, come on, you missed opportunities. That's so unfair, but there, there we are. There's no sermon. There's no dialogue with a pagan where we get to hear 
what, what he said, what questions were asked. There's not even a synagogue. There's nothing. But in the first part of today's passage, Paul did a few things that I want to mention again and suggest we could follow his lead. Received acts of kindness. Um, I said that's hard for me. It's difficult for me to ask for them, or even if you offer, sometimes it's hard for me to receive them. But I will tell you this, receiving acts of kindness is one of the best ways to build a bridge to people you don't know. So when your neighbor offers to give you some persimmons off their tree, I don't care if you don't like persimmons, take the persimmons and then bring them to me because the squirrels get all mine. All right. Then you're going to reciprocate, but that, not yet, not yet. Help outside your area of expertise. Um, you know, if, if you're a medical doctor and you're writing uh, histories, you're obviously serving maybe a little out of place the way Luke is. Uh, if you're Paul and you're gathering brush, this is not what we would expect your primary thing to be. And uh, the number of times I've seen Tim do something that's not, not necessary, yeah, he's Pastor Tim, but he, he wants to help. I have a picture in my head of a, a guy who had been a pastor of a really big church, and he came and, and worked as an interim pastor at a church I was at, and I, I came by the property one day, and he's up putting a no parking sign on a fence, and uh, I said, isn't there somebody who can do that? He's like, I had the sign, I knew how to do it, you know, just never got mentioned again. All kinds of little things that people can do when they're not making a big deal about themselves and when they're willing to serve in areas that maybe aren't their sweet spot. Okay, the next thing, he endured judgment by others, and you're going to have to do that if people know you follow Christ because they've got a picture in their head that's different from reality, and none of us are perfect even after Jesus begins the transformation process of us and we're going to disappoint people. But he does that, and he could live through it because he has the affirmation of God. He has the fellowship of Christ. He has community with other believers, and that's where he's looking for acceptance and love, not by random other people who are still making up their minds about him, and we could follow his example there. We can surprise others with our character, as Paul did. And finally, we reciprocate acts of kindness. And how do we do that? Well, we serve with what God has given us. So Paul, over the course of the books of Acts, has occasionally had a healing ministry. It doesn't get mentioned all the time, so we don't know how regularly it happened. Here, he clears up illness in Malta, and there's lots of ways in which our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, our family may be putting their confidence in something that won't last something that isn't sustainable. And rather than focusing on, you know, where they're wrong, uh, maybe, maybe the best approach isn't to look at somebody's, where their hope is and say, like Hulk, puny God, um, and, and accuse somebody of having something too weak. Maybe instead we've got the opportunity to paint a picture of where we invest our hope, of how that hope has sustained us in difficult times, why I and you need rescue from ourselves and from the other things that we've tried. What could you tell people about how you came to know Jesus and experience the joy that he brought? 
How has that changed your life? Answering that question for yourself and being able to communicate it to somebody else, that's really a thing we all ought to be able to do. And if, if you are holding a stock that regularly earns 12% a year in dividends, like, why haven't you told me? Equally, if you've got a reason for hope that transcends the circumstances of your life, what, why wouldn't you tell me about that? Why wouldn't you tell other people that you care about that? Why would that be any different? Okay, and then this is your weekly reminder, you are not Paul, okay? I'm not Paul, you're not Paul. Paul was called, he was sent, he was empowered to do something, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you and I are called or empowered to do the same thing. The way I'd sum it up is, I'm not Paul, but Paul's God is my God. Paul's Savior is my Savior. Paul isn't the primary source of power in our story. God is. But God used Paul to accomplish a healing. And I've spoken to many people who could tell me about healing that they've experienced. I've also spoken to many people who faithfully prayed for one kind or another of healing and never experienced it in the way that they desired. But... I know people who have prayed for healing that's occurred. I also know of the same people praying for healing that hasn't occurred. Does that mean that we should only pray when we're certain that it's going to be answered with a yes? No. I want to advocate for praying for healing, not just physical healing, but spiritual, emotional, mental healing others. So if somebody is telling you about a physical ailment, a mental difficulty, an emotional crisis, something along those lines, a spiritual questioning period, the very least that we ought to be doing is saying, God, would you, would you show me how I can comfort them in this situation? We should also be saying, hey, would it be okay if I prayed for you? I will tell you this, I have had people turn me down when I said that. I will also tell you it's been about one and a half percent of the time. I have been astonished at the people who have no interest in God and are accepting of prayer offered by somebody who they know sincerely cares for them. And that's why we're building relationship. So here's a short, simple prayer. God, please comfort, protect, and make this person well. Then pray that God would show the person grace and show them mercy because they're going to need it, whatever it is they're facing. And that's enough, all right? I don't have a healing ministry, but I've had the experience of praying for somebody and seeing them get well. I've also had the experience of praying for someone and seeing them die anyway. This is how life goes for now. Okay, you and I are responsible for caring for others and using our gifts the best we can to encourage each other and build each other up, and also to bind up the brokenhearted. Okay, I mentioned Luke doesn't portray Paul doing any evangelism in this passage. The apostle to the Gentiles brings no message, apparently, for these Gentiles, or did he? All right, um, worship team, if you don't mind coming up, let me close this way. One reason to wonder whether there was more to the story than Luke led on is that if you go to Malta, you can see evidence 
that may point to a change that happened on Malta. I think we've got an image uh, of St. Publius. Uh, this is a, a statue in a church on Malta. St. Publius, the first bishop of Malta. Now, this isn't from scripture. This is from human tradition. But according to tradition, this is the same man who hosted Paul and his friends, whose father was healed. His life was changed, and he became the first bishop of Malta. We don't know what that process looked like. What we know is that it was in the hands of a good and loving God who cared for him. And here's what Paul wrote to the Roman church he's, he's visiting in Romans 12, 12 and 13. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice, like Publius did, before and after, apparently, his conversion, hospitality. Um, God creates the world. Uh, he creates a garden, he, a, a context for community, for human beings to be in. And uh, how does it start going wrong? There's a snake. Uh, Moses and the people are in the desert, and they're grumbling and saying, Moses and God let us out here so that we die. And God's like, you don't say, and sends snakes after them. And they have this crystallizing moment of going, God's not the problem. I'm actually the problem. And they, they apologize. They repent. They go the other direction. And how are they healed? Moses makes a serpent, sticks it on a pole, raises it up. And if you look at the serpent, you're healed. Is it because the serpent is magic? No. It's because that was God's instruction. There's this serpent thing going on, and we just read a passage where the serpent was supposed to have power over Paul, and it would have, but God has power over the serpent every time. Would you stand with me, please? Let me pray. God, when it feels like we're snake bit, we have a tendency to lock our eyes on the circumstances. And when people we care about appear to be snake bit, we have a lot of concern and we don't know, we don't know what to do about it all the time. Or we rush about. God, would you allow us to depend on you in those situations, in, in the suffering of others, not just in our own suffering? in the questioning of others, not just our own questioning. And God, would you draw us and them to yourself in a way that allows them to experience the fullness of joy that comes from knowing you. I ask that you would sustain us by your grace and that you would wash us in your mercy. We need your help, God. And we ask that you would not only provide the help we need, but that you would give us resources to help those around us who are in need as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.